You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. At 10 o'clock p.m. on April 14, 1912, a 25-year-old Londoner named Frederick Fleet assumed his post in the crow's nest aboard the RMS Titanic along with his lookout partner, Reginald Lee. The two men had been warned to keep an eye out for small bits of ice in the water, a task made especially difficult on this particular night because of the moonless sky above. Meanwhile, the calm seas also made it harder to see anything clearly in the water. Without the waves breaking against the icebergs, the icebergs themselves were effectively invisible. It also didn't help that the two lookouts hadn't been issued binoculars. Though it was never proven, some later said that when Officer David Blair was removed from the crew of the maiden voyage at the last minute, he mistakenly walked off with the keys to the cabinet that held the binoculars in his pocket. It's been debated over the years whether binoculars would have helped Fleet or Lee spot the iceberg any sooner. Fleet maintained during the inquiries that if he had been equipped with binoculars, the disaster would never have happened. Whether he was right or not, his fateful moment in the crow's nest would weigh on him for the rest of his life, eventually pushing him into a downward spiral of depression that ended with suicide in 1965. That fateful moment came at 11.39pm, just before his shift was to end. It was then that Frederick Fleet suddenly saw a large mass emerge directly in front of the ship. In a panic, he rang the bell three times and telephoned the bridge. Sixth officer James Paul Moody immediately picked up the phone and answered with, What did you see? Fleet replied, Iceberg! Right ahead! Before he had even hung up the phone, the bridge crew snapped into action, turned the wheel, and sent the ship careening desperately to the left. Moody, First Officer William Murdoch, and the rest of the crew on the bridge had reacted quickly, but not quickly enough. The ship's right side scraped the iceberg, causing massive pieces of ice to rain down onto the decks. Nevertheless, for one brief moment, it seemed as if the ship had just brushed the edge of the ice. Nothing more than a near miss. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past. I'm All That's Interesting staff writer Austin Harvey. Today, we're continuing our six-part series on the sinking of the RMS Titanic. This is the Titanic Part 2, Iceberg, right ahead. History Uncovered listeners, this is Kit Westney, producer of History Uncovered, and throughout the first half of 2023, we'll be conducting a survey as part of the Airwave Network in order to help us get to know you, your interests, and what you think of the show. We want to hear from you. You can find the questionnaire at surveymonkey.com r airwave, and it would not just support the show, but also help us to know what to improve. And as a special thanks, you'll be entered for a chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card. Again, that's surveymonkey.com r airwave where you can click the link in our episode notes. Thanks for listening. 
Throughout the four days before Frederick Fleet looked out from the crow's nest of the Titanic and saw doom bearing down on him, the ship's passengers enjoyed a smooth journey aboard the most celebrated ship in the world. First-class passengers feasted in style in the largest dining room ever seen on a ship, with a live orchestra accompanying their meals. Each of their suites had two bedrooms, two walk-in wardrobes, and a bathroom. And while second- and third-class passengers didn't enjoy the same heights of luxury as their first-class counterparts, their facilities were still leagues better than those found on other liners of the day. Second-class passengers had access to an outdoor promenade, a smoking room, a library, and their own dining room. In the afternoons, they could enjoy tea and coffee, and though they didn't have an entire orchestra to entertain them, they did have a pianist who played during their mealtimes. Third-class passengers likewise had their own dining room, and unlike other ships of the day, they were also given meals on board. Granted, they were much simpler than the meals served to the other passengers, but many ships expected third-class passengers to bring their own food. This boat is giant in size and fitted up like a palatial hotel. The food and music is excellent. So far, we have had very good weather. If all goes well, we will arrive in New York on Wednesday a.m. Alexander Oscar Holverson, first-class passenger in a letter to his mother, found in a pocketbook recovered from his body. The RMS Titanic was well and truly the height of modern luxury for its passengers. Meanwhile, it was so large that even its crew members, let alone the passengers, could hardly take it all in. Charles Lightoller, the Titanic's second officer, said of the ship, quote, you could actually walk miles along the decks and passages covering different ground all the time. I was thoroughly familiar with pretty well every ship afloat, but it took me 14 days before I could, with confidence, find my way from one part of that ship to another, end quote. In all, the Titanic was both so big and so resplendent that it was easy to forget you were even at sea. In the words of one of its passengers, Colonel Archibald Gracie of Mobile, Alabama, being at the Titanic was like being in a summer palace by the seashore, surrounded by every comfort. The ship was outfitted with a six-foot-deep saltwater pool, quote, heated to a refreshing temperature, where Gracie and other guests could take a relaxing swim in the mornings or evenings while the temperatures were still cool. Of course, such luxuries were not to be enjoyed for long. In two separate inquiries following the tragedy, Frederick Fleet testified that at the moment of impact he heard only a quote-unquote grinding noise and noticed that the Titanic had passed so close to the iceberg that some ice had scraped off and fallen onto the deck. When asked during a congressional hearing if he had been alarmed, Fleet testified that he hadn't. He thought that it had only been a quote narrow shave. But what Fleet and the bridge crew didn't realize, if only for a moment, was that the iceberg had not only scraped the side of the ship above the water, but below the waterline as well, leaving a gash of around 30 feet. The Titanic had 16 so-called watertight compartments, but as the crew in the boiler room and mail room looked on in horror, water poured into five of them at an estimated rate of 1,400 liters per second. It quickly became clear that if the water pulled down the first five compartments, allowing more water to gush into the sixth compartment, and the seventh, and then the eighth, the Titanic would take on so much water that it would inevitably sink. Still, at this moment, the urgency of the disaster wasn't entirely clear to many on board. Some passengers didn't feel a thing and had no idea that anything was wrong until a crew member knocked on their door and told them. 
Many even later described the hours leading up to the Titanic sinking as a time of eerie calm. Charles Lightoller even admitted that he didn't foresee the looming disaster, testifying after the tragedy that he'd felt, quote, fairly confident the Titanic would not sink. Indeed, in the first few minutes after the Titanic hit the iceberg, many believed that all was well, but a number of people on board quickly realized the magnitude of what had happened. Thomas Andrews, who had designed the ship, examined the damage on the spot and proclaimed that the Titanic would sink in just two hours. Bruce Ismay, the president of the White Star Line, was awoken by a jolt in the night from the collision and went to find the captain, Edward Smith, who seconded Andrews' dire prediction. Ismay later testified, quote, I found Captain Smith, I asked him what had happened, and he said, we have struck ice. I said, do you think the ship is seriously damaged? He said, I'm afraid she is. Unquote. Ismay also claimed, however, that he'd spoken to the ship's chief engineer, Joseph Bell, who allegedly told him that though the ship was damaged, he believed that its pumps would keep afloat. My mother had a premonition from the very word go. She knew there was something to be afraid of, and the only thing that she felt strongly about was that to say a ship was unsinkable was flying in the face of God. Those were her words. Ava Hart, seven-year-old Titanic survivor. Whether or not the Titanic would sink, its officers seemed to realize that they were standing on the precipice of a catastrophe. After about 20 minutes, Smith ordered the wireless operators Jack Phillips and his assistant Harold Bride to send out a distress signal and fire off emergency flares. However, a Senate investigation found that no alarm was sounded on the Titanic itself, possibly to avoid inciting panic. Charles Lightoller reportedly kept the mood calm by telling passengers that the lifeboats were being lowered only as a precaution, and reassuring them that a rescue ship was only a few miles away. In truth, the nearest vessel, the Californian, never responded, and the Carpathia, which did respond, was 58 nautical miles away, and it would take three hours until it could reach the Titanic. Other vessels heard the Titanic's distress signals as well, but all were too far away to come to its rescue. Most passengers, on the other hand, it seemed didn't realize what was going on, and many members of the crew, like Lightoller, assured them that nothing was happening at all. I stretched on the brass bed, at the side of which was a lamp. So completely absorbed in my reading, I gave little thought to the crash that struck at my window overhead and threw me to the floor. The unsinkable Molly Brown. One passenger who was told that nothing was the matter was Eugene Daly, an Irishman who was chaperoning two young women on their journey to the United States. He awoke in steerage class after the jolt from the ship scraping the iceberg nearly threw him from his bed. He ran into a steward in the hall who told him there was no cause for alarm and that he could return to his cabin. Daly did, but he re-emerged after hearing noise on the upper decks. Another sailor then told him there was no reason to be concerned and that the ship would stay afloat for hours, but Daly and his companions decided to head for the lifeboats anyway. There, Daly and the women prayed together on the upper deck and waited, unsure of what to do next. Meanwhile, second-class passenger Lawrence Beasley, who was awake when the ship hit the iceberg around 11.40pm, described feeling strong vibrations that he attributed to an increase in speed, not a collision. He later wrote, quote, all this time, the Titanic was being cut open by the iceberg and water was pouring in her side, and yet no evidence that would indicate such a disaster had been presented to us, unquote. Unaware that the iceberg had sliced through the side of the ship, quote, like a knife cuts paper, as Beasley later wrote, he kept on reading in his cabin. 
It wasn't until Beasley felt the vessel pull to a stop that he realized something might have happened, but a steward in the hallway told him that he hadn't heard of anything and that if something was going on, it was probably not, quote, anything much. Curious, though not exactly alarmed, Beasley continued onto the upper decks and encountered a group of men playing poker in the smoking room, their mood light. One man joked that it appeared that the iceberg had scraped off some of the Titanic's new paint, and another raised his glass of whiskey and said that he could use some of the chunks for his drink. Some passengers even picked up pieces of ice and threw them like snowballs, as crew members nearby assured them that there was nothing to worry about. Beasley wrote, quote, All this time there was no apprehension of danger in the minds of the passengers, and no one was in any condition of panic or hysteria. After all, it would have been strange if they had been, without any definite evidence of danger, unquote. Meanwhile, the band of the Titanic congregated on the deck to try and keep an air of calm about the vessel. Even as it slowly sank into the ocean, the band played on. Lightoller later said of the moment, quote, I don't like jazz music as a rule, but I think it helped us all. But the mood on the Titanic would soon shift, as passengers gathered on the decks and lifeboat after lifeboat was dropped into the dark, freezing sea, many on board began to realize that they were in grave danger. Soon, Lightoller's approach turned. Boarding the lifeboats was no longer a precaution and was now officially an evacuation. He made the call to get as many passengers on board the lifeboats as possible, starting with the women and children. The first men to arrive at the lifeboats were turned away, including the Titanic's wealthiest passenger, John Jacob Astor, a New York real estate magnate worth $150 million, more than $4 billion today. Lightoller made it clear that wealth would not determine who was saved. The women and children came first, and this practice saved many who were in second and third class cabins. There was, however, a problem. Despite having more lifeboats than were required by the British Board of Trade, 20 in all, they could only carry 1,178 people, but the crew worried that the ship's davits, the cranes used to lower lifeboats, wouldn't be able to support the weight of a fully loaded lifeboat, and so they dispatched the lifeboats severely underloaded. Lifeboat number 7, the first to leave the Titanic, only held around 27 people, despite having enough room for 65. To make matters worse, the Titanic had scheduled a lifeboat drill for earlier in the day, then canceled it, and the crew had not been aware that the ship's davits were tested well in Belfast, meaning they could have loaded lifeboats fully. By morning, more than 1,500 people on board the Titanic would perish, while only 706 had made it to safety on the lifeboats. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are several layers to the haunting question of how and why it all went wrong aboard the Titanic. Initial investigations concluded that it was purely the iceberg, not any weakness within the ship itself, that caused the Titanic to sink. Many also pointed fingers at the ship's captain, Edward Smith, for racing at 22 knots through a known ice field in dark waters. Radio operators at the time had been warned about ice by the nearby SS Californian, 
but these warnings were not heeded because the communication lines were simply too crowded. In fact, at one point, the Titanic's chief telegraphist replied to one such warning by snapping, quote, Shut up, I'm busy. But in the many decades since the Titanic's fateful voyage, more information about the ship's crash and the events that preceded it have come to light. As it turns out, this unsinkable ship wasn't nearly as durable as advertised. A 1985 expedition to find the wreckage of the Titanic revealed that the ship had not sunk fully intact as previously believed. In truth, the Titanic had split in half, and investigators were quick to try and discern why. Some cast doubt on the integrity of the steel used to construct the ship, with an early test revealing that at least some of the steel could be easily broken with a hammer. Other investigations looked into the more than 3 million rivets that held the steel together, finding that they contained a high concentration of slag, a residue used for smelting that can cause metal to split apart. It's possible that this slag may have caused the Titanic to break apart when it collided with the iceberg. To be clear, the Titanic was traveling far too fast, but a 2004 paper from engineer Robert S. High suggested that this high speed may have been the result of an attempt to contain a fire in one of the ship's coal bunkers. Then, Charles Lightoller's granddaughter, Louise Patton, claimed in 2010 that one of the ship's crew members had in fact taken a wrong turn entirely in a panic after hearing the order to turn quote, hard a starboard. Ships at the time operated on two different steering order systems, and it's possible that the crew member may have been confused and turned the ship in the wrong direction, one that sent it barreling straight toward the iceberg. Two studies conducted around the 100th anniversary of the Titanic sinking added another piece to the puzzle, suggesting that weather conditions also played a significant role in the disaster. One study by British historian Tim Malton claimed that the atmospheric conditions on the night of April 14, 1912, may have caused a super refraction. This unique phenomenon is a bending of the light that can create mirror images or optical illusions. Because of the refraction, the Titanic's lookouts may not have been able to see the iceberg clearly. The other study claimed that the Earth had come unusually close to the moon and the sun that year, which would have influenced their gravitational pull on Earth's oceans. As a result, the tides would have been much stronger than usual, causing an increase in the amount of ice floating in the North Atlantic. If you look in your dictionary, you will find Titans, a race of people vainly striving to overcome the forces of nature. Could anything be more unfortunate than such a name? Anything more significant? Arthur Rostron, captain of the RMS Carpathia, the ship that rescued the Titanic's survivors. In the end, there's no real way to know which of these factors truly played a role in the Titanic's demise, but the situation was certainly far more nuanced than initial reports made it out to be. Much of the blame initially fell solely on Captain Smith, but that's generally accepted to be unfair in hindsight. Smith was, after all, an experienced captain who had spent nearly 40 years at sea. Still, the Titanic disaster does add a note of horribly bitter irony to Smith's once optimistic remark, made before the Titanic set sail, that his career as a sea captain could be described as, quote, uneventful. Of course there have been winter gales, Smith had said in a New York Times interview in 1907, and storms and fog the like, but in all my experience, I've never been in any accident of any sort worth speaking about. I never saw a wreck, and never have been wrecked, nor was I ever in any predicament that threatened to end in disaster of any sort. You see, I'm not very good material for a story. Smith was ultimately proven wrong, however. He was, in the end, and in the most unfortunate way possible, exceptional material for a story. 
But he was far from the only person aboard the doomed ship with a story worth telling. Stories which all this interesting staff writer Kalina Fraga will cover next time in the Titanic Part 3, Sinking into the Atlantic. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.